Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast, the show where we connect you to the highest quality information and leading professionals in the world of human performance. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Performance Connection Podcast. Today, I am joined by Derek Wilcox. Derek, how are you? Doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing awesome. How's, how's Tennessee today? Oh, well, I'm in North Carolina now. Oh, I, North Carolina. That's right. Yeah, that's ten, right. Tennessee that's right. was I had Tennessee on the brink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, North Carolina is beautiful, especially awesome. after I was just in Kansas for about a week and a half during the holidays. The weather is so much better down here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling I it, Derek. I'm in Iowa, so I, I feel the, yeah. the poor Kansas weather for sure. <laughs> Yeah, my, uh, my wife caught up oh. there for a little while, so she's explained the winters there were pretty wild. Oh, yeah. Where did she teach? Northern Iowa, I believe. Oh, yeah. You and I. Okay. Yeah, with a, a fellow RP, I guess I used to be. I, I don't know if he's still Jake Reed is. Yeah. Um, yeah, Jake Reed is there. Is there still? He's an RP guy. And uh, you're actually our second ETSU graduate on the podcast. We had Dr. Sukumel on earlier. So, oh, cool. I guess I'm, that's, that's kind of like my plan. I'm just going to mine the ETSU tree for a while. <laughs> hey, why not? <laughs> gives me gives me a good list of, of guests. Yeah. So. I, I was a subject yeah. in, in Dr. Tim's study where he was doing ballistics and potentiation for vertical jumps. And he okay. had me trying to jump with 700 pounds on my back. He, uh, he shows that sounds a fun. Lot in his studies. <laughs> okay. So, where was that in your powerlifting journey? I was still competing then. Uh, I think that okay. was... So see. 700 was like 70% for you then? Thereabouts, yeah. It, it was, we did <laughs> You're a, serious though, that's the thing. That's what's funny. Oh yeah, it just was. We did, the first part of the study was doing a normal one rep max with a standard weightlifting type squat. And then we did a max at 90 degree knee angle out of pins. So they would set where okay. the pin height was based on your knee angle. And I think yep. I stopped at 350 kilos on that, 771. And honestly, I could have gone heavier, but yeah. I knew I was going to have to jump in the next session with 90% of that. So uh, it was it was almost, it was was more of a business decision for me, but nobody was going to really complain. Like, oh, he's only jumping with 705. <laughs> yeah, only. Quote. Yeah. So, okay, so were you like a major outlier in the population? Yes. In the subjects then? Yeah, okay, so just, the yeah. studies that I can, that I, participated in at ETSU, I quickly learned we're all for naught because my numbers didn't make sense for multiple reasons. It wasn't just because strength or whatever, but my body was also beat up. So my explosiveness or RFD or reactive strength index for all those studies, it didn't match up to the rest of everything else that was going on because I could lift really heavy things. But when I would try to do like a depth jump or something like that, my RFD was so low because my hips were shot. So (laughs) it mixed a lot of things up. So my data just got tossed in every, every study. So I was killing myself for nothing. It was for nothing. Yeah. For but nothing. You got like a free gift card or something, right? Or at least like a, a handshake or a pat on the back from Tim or something. I, d- I did get some pats on the back and I really appreciate go. it. Got some cool pictures most... where they were having to duct tape more weight onto the bar than would fit. The... Yeah. Yeah. That was fun though. And- Research is so funny like that. I remember we were doing, I think we were doing like a creatine trial when I was in grad school and it was a cool setup. It was essentially NFL combine. Like it, we, we would do, I think we did one rep max bench instead of 225. But then of course, lower body testing, strength testing can be all over the place in research. You typically don't have people who can squat. They're not, they're just 
you're not going to get a lot of people who are skilled enough for it to matter. So then yep. you do leg press or you do, gosh, we did, I don't know who designed, who designed, I was just a grad student. So I just helped. We did the one rep max leg extension, but then they got, this was one of those leg extensions where it was just a chair, not attached to anything. And it was like a plate loaded leg extension. Oh, wow. And it got so heavy that the, the chair would move when they would try to explosively extend their leg. Yeah. And so here I am with like the other grad students. I'm like trying to hold it in place while these kids are doing way more weight than they should be. They're just like throwing their, I'm like, what is going on here? But to your point of like duct tape, you just do what you do in research. And sometimes that when it gets in a paper, like the method section doesn't really reflect sometimes what happened. I don't know whatever happened to that study, but yeah, it was like we did 40s, pro agilities, vertical jump. It was a really cool laid out study from that standpoint. But I don't think, I don't know, GNC might have been funding it. And they, I don't know if they liked the results or something like that. I don't know if it ever saw the light of day. It was, uh, it was a, a cool and eye-opening experience into research for sure. Yeah. It's funny well, how those little details all contribute to some wild stories that don't quite make it in the method set. They don't quite make well. it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Derek, we've already kind of touched on some of your background. You got your doctorate at, at, at uh, East Tennessee State University. What, what else about your background would you like the listener to know before we dive into the, today's topic? Uh, well, I've, I started training when I was 12 years old. I'm 36 now, so I'm oh, well, about to turn 37 next month. So going on a quarter century of training, but I competed in strength sports. That's what most people know me for, primarily powerlifting. I was the uh, smallest guy to squat 1,000 pounds in the history of human people. And I had a world record squat at 181 of 935 pounds. Uh, that, yeah. I don't know. If, I know the 181 record's been broken. I'm not sure if the 1,000-pound one has been broken or not. Nobody's told me. So I, I hope somebody <laughs> would. Like, we're but not going to approach I, the guy. <laughs> yeah. No. Hey, your big accomplishments have been flushed down the crapper. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I hope somebody would. But I retired from competitive lifting in 2018, so I, I just haven't been in those circles at all. Yep. Yeah, I so, competed in, yeah, also in Highland strong, Games in, as well. In Highland, yep, yep. Yeah, strongman Highland Games. I'm five six, five seven now, thanks to all the squish from those heavy squats. Hence, <laughs> I quickly figured out strongman was not for me when I went oh. to my first strongman competition, and I had a 200-pound yeah. stone, and the first platform was six feet tall. So I'm having to shoulder right. the 200-pound stone and take shoot a free throw with it to try and get yeah. it up there under the other side to keep it from rolling off. I felt like a little toddler trying to get cookies off the top of the counter. Right. Yeah. But yeah. Highland Games also kind of a tall person sport just for the circumference and the physics involved with that velocity. Yep. But it's so much fun. I, I still yeah. do that to a, a decent extent. Awesome. Yeah, I'm with you on Strongman. The first Strongman competition I did had Conan's wheel in it. Here I am. And here I am five foot eight. And I'm like holding it, trying to hold it the, the bar up by my chest. You know, if it drops two inches, I'm done. And then I have these other yeah. guys that are like six foot six. They're holding it like down <laughs> by their crotch and they're not even touching the ground yeah. yet. And I'm just like, this sucks. <laughs> yeah. And the higher those things get, the less load is actually on the person thanks to the leverage right. there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so now the, the last frontier is CrossFit for you. Yeah. Probably not. <laughs> I, <laughs> my, when I started seeing my wife, when we started dating, Dr. Jennifer Case, if nobody is familiar, she's an 11-time world champion in jiu-jitsu. 
She's got two MMA world championships on top of that. When we started dating, I did not start jujitsu. Jujitsu started happening to me. <laughs> so it was either going to continue that way or I would go to the classes and start learning jujitsu to hopefully defend myself and my wife, which I still cannot. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes, you guys are like, you guys are a pretty, pretty awesome power couple, I would say, from degrees and the strength background and, and all that stuff. And people yeah. probably already wouldn't want to mess with you, but now the jujitsu's in there and now it's just, yeah, no one's going to mess yeah, with Well, nobody them. messes with him now because they'll, they'll get beat up by my wife. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, people yeah, so now you're, there's not. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, now you're kind of, you're, you've been doing jujitsu. So as a former wrestling strength coach myself, this was something that I always had in the back of my head because on the surface, and, and I'm going to be fully transparent with you, I don't know anything about jujitsu really. And I'm the one sub 5'10 guy from Iowa that's never wrestled. So even <laughs> that was a learning curve. But wrestling kind of on its face, you think, is maybe like a sport where like pure strength and power can really matter a lot because you you get to you get into the team sports. There's so many technical, tactical, scheme based things that come into play when it comes to the utility of strength and conditioning. But you're like wrestlers, like okay, this is a brute mano a mano sport. Yet I can't tell you how many amazingly physically gifted wrestlers I saw get pinned within 30 seconds. For sure. So from a jujitsu standpoint. How much does like strength, power, these classical things we associate with strength and conditioning or strength training and performance, like how much do they matter in a sport? Like when your level of technique and skill is relatively close, strength and conditioning matters a ton. Okay. There's a large discrepancy in that technique and skill, especially speed, flexibility as well. Then strength conditioning doesn't matter anywhere near as much because someone will outposition you as I quickly learned when, when <laughs> I would right. get beat up very quick. When I, I, I started that about a year after I retired from powerlifting, I was still very physically strong in a static sense and I could move people around, but yeah. they would also move around me and get in places where my strength meant absolutely nothing. It was almost a detriment. That's, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. Just cause again, it's a grappling sport. So you think like some level of sheer strength matters. And so, yeah, to your point, all things being equal, sure. But yeah, the other stuff obviously matters. It matters a great deal. So very interesting on, on that. So today we're going to dive into, I guess the, how, how to attain or things to consider for sustained progress for training, where that strength, power, probably be where we'll largely focus and kind of avoiding training gimmicks, like how to maybe how to identify them and then avoid them or where, when maybe some things might be applicable or more, more useful, be more appropriate. There's the word I'm looking for versus not. So I guess let's start with just your general take on training longevity. And if you want to like stick with strength, that's totally fine. How should most trainees kind of approach this topic or what should, what's the mindset they should have around training methods or training style for the intent of, Hey, I'm in this for the long game. I want to sustain progress for as long as possible. 
Well, I say this a lot with lifting and it goes for training in general. You, the three keys are to train hard or lift heavy. That's the parallel there. Do it often and manage your fatigue. So the fatigue management comes in after you've already put in an ample amount of effort into your training. And then when you're consistent with that, the fatigue management comes in to make sure that you are able to push hard. But when you push hard, you accumulate fatigue. You have high fatigue that increases your risk for injury. And you also don't adapt from the hard work that you did until you've at least mostly recovered from all that work. Then you have that super compensation effect afterward, which I learned to a very large degree in my powerlifting career because I was only lifting above 90% half the time and really only went to a max of once a month, especially as I got stronger and stronger. So figuring out how much you actually need to train but not figuring out how much you want to train. Like the, the want to, that's easy. You, you'll find people in every single gym, everywhere you go, who are super quote unquote hardcore about their training and they go to failure all the time and they'll put in a lot of physical work. But for true longevity and maximum success, the hardcore people are going to research as well. And it's not reading magazine articles or watching an IG influencer. If you want to know the truth, you have to go into peer-reviewed research. And even that's hard to sift through to a large extent. You like That's 100% why I went to grad school. I wanted to be a better <laughs> yeah. competitor. And yeah. I realized I need a deeper base of knowledge so I can do this as long as I can to the maximum extent that I can to be as competitive and have that advantage as much as I could. Uh, my wife did exactly the same thing. She went to, She got her PhD in human nutrition with a performance emphasis just so she could make weight better in her MMA and jujitsu career. So, yeah. And I I think when you find people as coaches or consultants who went to school or did all their education with a completely selfish endeavor, it's not to go have a career somewhere. It's like they are passionate about what they do and they want to learn because of that. They will be studying a lot more because it directly influences their success and not just getting their name on a certificate after they're done with all the classes. And that's really helped me with my career because I can take all those things to a large extent and work with clients. And most of the stuff I just learned in the basics, helping people get to that point is the best. But when I do have a specialist come along, because I work with a super broad spectrum of clients, from performance people to just grandparents who want to be able to play with their grandkids long. I have that ability to crank up the specificity and the training and the details and all those things. And that's fun too, but I, I love working with everybody. Yeah. It gives you a good perspective. It definitely is. When you work with the broad spectrum of people, definitely you can provide a lot of really good perspective on a lot of different facets. So then let's talk about how people can learn what hard and often is for them and how much the should versus want to. And again, it's, I think it's easiest to kind of bucket into qualities, right? Unless you want to, unless you have a different feeling on it. <clears throat> how can someone go about d- deciphering for themselves or I guess their clients, how, what is hard enough and how, what is often enough to 
yeah, get not only get progress, but then ensure that progress will be sustained because it's always easy to say, okay, I, I got this progress. Well, when's that the point going to be where I've adapted and I need to switch things up, quote unquote, or when I need a new stimulus, or when I need to switch things up from that standpoint? How do you start identifying that or how do you help people identify? Yeah, that's there's the big sliding scale on that as far as perspective and ways to do that. For the layman, most of the time it's after you've been in the gym or doing whatever training that you're doing and you stop progressing and you feel like crap. That's usually the, the simplest way to say, okay, I need to take some downtime so I can recover. And then at that point, you've completely adapted to the largest extent that you can to the stimulus that you've placed on yourself through that specific training, whether it's exercises or running, whatever it is. And you need to change things up for the next four to six weeks on average. So when you reach that point, it's time to rest and switch things up at the most basic level. If you want to get into more drastic measures and things like that, you can look at heart rate variability. All right. In a simple way, you can just take your resting heart rate after you wake up in the morning. Make sure it's a reliable measure. But if you chart that over time, you can actually pretty accurately predict when you need to take rest and also when you're going to get sick because immune function starts increasing stresses on the body and your resting heart rate will go up as well. Uh, my dissertation had a lot of these kind of factors in it where I was measuring bench press velocity. This is a uh, disabled powerlifter, bench press only, of course. Uh, and we were we measured bench press velocity before all his pressing days, and we measured grip strength uh, before every single session that he did. And we were able to see those same kind of trends where his monitoring measures would be subdued while he was in fatigue from heavier training. And when lighter training was occurring, those monitoring measures would skyrocket back up. We saw that super consistently. We were able to actually see a sharp decline about four to five days before he came down with a really bad sinus infection as well. So we got kind of lucky that he got sick, oddly enough, going (laughs) into competition. Sadistic way, yeah. Yeah, in a, uh, yeah, get sick for science. You'll help somebody. (laughs) But he wasn't excited about it. But just having that spontaneously occur during a case study was pretty cool. And it backs up a lot of the theory of athlete monitoring and being able to predict things and you can be proactive as a coach if you're monitoring your data appropriately to get your athletes into a position where they won't be as sick as long, where they want. Because you start seeing a decline in the monitoring numbers. Like, I don't know what the, what's going on, especially if it's this time of year. You get two, three days in a row where that ele- resting heart rate is elevated. You got to be thinking, okay, they may just be getting sick. We need to chill out. And yeah. a lot of times that's the case. So. I want to go back to the resting heart rate thing for just a little bit. What are people looking for there? So if someone's not familiar with tracking this and what they should or what they could yeah. be seeing, what are signs that things are going well or what's what signs that things may be deteriorating and we need to have some somewhat of a back off from training intensity or volume? Right. So your resting heart rate is a pretty good indicator of systemic body stress mm-hmm. of all kinds. Uh, it could be emotional. It can be physiological, fatigue. Uh, infection, whatever. So when you are in a higher stressed state, your resting heart rate goes higher. When you are more recovered or more relaxed, your heart rate goes lower, of course. So 
when we monitor this with athletics or really any, anything else, if you have measures that are more than two standard deviations, hopefully you folks are familiar with some stats, basic stats. Yes, yeah, I think who did it? Who, we recently had an episode where, the, oh, it's with Justin Lima. Yeah, Justin okay, Lima, cool. he had to explain Z-score. So we've had a little bit of that. So yeah, yeah. just, yeah. Keep going with your explanation. If we need to dive into that, we can, for sure. Yeah. Standard deviation is just, in, in the most layman terms, it's uh, the average variance away from the average of all the data. And if you get two standard deviations away from the average, especially for multiple measures in a row, or usually about three, you've got to think, okay, this is not just randomly happening. There's something behind this. And, and that's when you start making your decisions to adjust whatever needs to be done. Uh, if their heart rate is still extra low after hard training, maybe they can push a little harder for a little longer. Uh, who knows what's going on there, but that kind of gives you a little bit of a green light to make a more informed decision as a coach. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, that's super simple too. Like it's something that yeah. you don't need, you don't need trackers or you don't need a whoop or anything like that. Just, yeah, it's free. <laughs> free info. So then I do want to ask you about just the notion of progress and what that that is and kind of going back to what what is the, what is at the base level the appropriate amount of workload so to speak if you're a newbie you can expect to have really high rates of progress you know i'm like you i'm not quite a quarter century of training and lifting experience but i'm at that 20 years i know i know that i cannot expect to perform at my peak week in and week and this is where like a lot of people I train alongside, they get frustrated really easily after the new It's because they think I should just be, they should be able to just keep on that trend. And I'm, I kind of have to temper expectations within not being, I don't want to give an unsolicited opinion, right? But I have to be like, okay, you just got to understand that these things are going to fluctuate. You're not going to be the best that you are every single day or every single week. And you, you know that from being one of the strongest humans in the world like that's probably even greater fluctuations right when you're at that oh, yeah. level like a five percent fluctuation for you means a lot more than someone like me right yeah so talk about the progress aspect a little more of like all right let's say someone has kind of at that six month mark they've kind of maybe starting get out, getting out of the newbie gains or whatever it may be strength or hypertrophy exactly yeah or they're not going to PR. You're not going to PR every session, probably. But at the same time, doesn't necessarily mean you need to go and just revamp everything. You don't need right. to maybe add in some of the gimmicks that you might see or do some advanced crazy protocol to stimulate those new gains. So just talk about what progress can mean or what it could look like. And again, if you just want to use strength, that, that we can roll with that too, just to make it easy. Uh, and then we can apply the concepts to maybe other qualities. But how can trainees or how can people help their clients through how to evaluate what progress is or what it should look like or what it could be? And when a true new stimulus is. So the, the time frame of looking back, and comparing yourself gets longer and longer, the longer that you train. So when you first start training, you can look, okay, well, last week I did this. I'll do more this week. And then after that six-month point, it becomes, okay, well, 
I, I guess I need to take some easy weeks because I'm not just getting stronger every single week. And I'll have to have a, a four-week block, and I'll compare myself to last month. So if I'm doing 10s on bench press, I'll take a couple easy weeks, then come back to work my way back up, and maybe I'll be a little bit stronger than I was last month. When you start getting into the aspect of years, it starts getting longer and longer. It's, okay, well, I hit this PR three months ago. I can probably beat it now. And then when you get closer to a decade, and in context of how I, I like to do my training, I'm a big fan of concentrated loads, so I'll do specific sets and reps. It makes it super easy to keep your landmark weights and PRs organized in that way. So if I'm doing a block of 3 by 10 I'm going to look back, and the last time I did 3 by 10 was probably six months prior. Yeah. And I'll look back and say, okay, well, I'm comparing myself to six months ago. When you get into multiple decades of training, if you're still able to make that kind of progress and you're healthy enough to do it, a lot of times you're looking back over a year. Yeah. But it's finding a way to compare apples to what you've done before because over time, especially for long-term sustainability, training planning needs to have an ebb and flow of waving intensity up and down to facilitate stimulus and then recovery properly. And with your progressive overload or your variation, whatever you want to call it, the exercises change, the sets and reps change, your rep ranges change, all those things over time. But eventually you cycle back to something similar that you're about to do. And most of the time it's several months beforehand. And that, that's a, one of the key things that I've used forever to avoid plateaus. And right. in my powerlifting career, I could feel my joints giving way because I, I was born with congenital joint dysplasia. Oh, and okay. my cartilage degraded way faster than, than most folks does because I had seven shoulder dislocations. My right hip would pop out twice in high school. So I, I was already playing that hand as yeah. far as what I was dealt at birth. So I knew my time was going to be shorter. But towards the end of my career, by understanding those principles, doing the research and being more educated on what I was doing, the progress was relatively simple because I, I knew how much of a dose I needed in training. I waved up and down in the intensities to make sure I recovered. I avoided major injury. I never had a major injury in my entire career. And I think that is the biggest reason because I, I managed fatigue and had a little bit more thoughtful procedure into how I was training. For sure. So now that, I mean, that's a fair amount of tracking and planning. Mm -hmm. What, how about there's more of a general sense? So let's say someone is working with a client who, yes, strength is a part of it, but it, it's not like the sole focus. They're doing mixed training. It's more of a, like a, more of a fitness focused, general fitness focused style of training. Yeah, these things are still important, right? Like you still have to consider these foundational principles if you want to continue to make progress, but also kind of weighing the novelty aspect, right? Because sure. if you're yeah. a personal trainer, like you got to have, got to be fun for the clients or whatever, even for yourself. I'll be honest, man. Like I personally, I need a, fair, a lot of variety in my training because I get bored super easily and I don't, sure. like I like being stronger than the average person, but I don't need to be super duper strong. So for me, like training variety is good or I like it. It keeps me engaged, but like the strength coach side of me is like, what are you doing, man? Don't you know? Like, <laughs> like these are the things that are in the back of my head. So how, what's your advice for someone who maybe just has more general goals, but still wants to monitor 
their workload appropriately, manage fatigue appropriately, because it's still important if you train hard, if you still want to train hard, like that's the caveat, right? right? If you're not really training hard, it might not matter. But as I, I'm like, you all be 36 next month for the long term. these things that are what I would need to consider. And really anyone would needs to consider for the long-term progress. So if it's a more general goal, what is your recommendation for things people can, other things people can look at to manage their fatigue? Uh, well, sleep's obviously probably the biggest one. If you've got crappy sleep, it doesn't matter if you're a world-class athlete or somebody moving around with a walker, like you're not going <laughs> to recover well. You're not going to feel, and that's never going to work out well. So you have to get sleep sorted out. But I think it's, a lot of it's being honest with yourself. Like, and you've got to have some kind of a, a basic understanding of how the body works. As far as if you feel bad, there's probably a reason. If you consistently <laughs> yeah. feel bad, there's definitely a reason. Yeah. If you feel good right now, well, it's because you rested. It's those kinds of basic things. Uh, simple thing for like body composition, I, I tell my clients first and foremost, uh, your spouse is the gold standard for body comp assessment. Uh, past that, the pants yes. test is usually the best because your pants don't change a ton. And if they fit when they didn't used to, you've made considerable progress even if the scale hasn't moved. I have all my clients do body weight and waist measurement, hip measurement for all those things. But even with that, pants still seem to give more intuitive feedback. You can feel where it's loose, where it's tight, and things like that. So, right. Th- those are little tricks if, you're, if those are more related to your goals or they're more general. Most people just want to be leaner and stronger. Yeah. So, And yeah, if you're able to perform things better than you used to and your pants fit and the spouse is happy with looking at you and doesn't get nauseated, you're probably making bro- pretty That's good progress or maintaining well. Are there any tricks that you are any, I guess, yeah, tricks or any really useful things from a, like more of an in-session auto-regulation standpoint that you have that you recommend to either your clients or that you used throughout the years of I've got to change something today in this session. Because that's something I think about a lot. Of, yeah. People are, oh, oh, they might ask me, hey, Corey, what do you think you're going to hit today? And I'll be like, I can't tell you. I'll tell you after my next few warm-up sets. I'll probably be able to tell sure. kind of thing. What are your recommendations from that standpoint? More of this very acute auto-regulation. What well, you made the point earlier that strength fluctuates to a large degree. And it definitely fluctuates every single day. And I, I have the line that we're never the same athlete that we are from day to day. Like your strength level will not be the same. And I, I work with a, an auto-regulation scheme. I, I call it RPE, but apparently that was already used in a completely different context where it had nothing to do with what was established in research. And it's more <laughs> of a, a reps in reserve kind of scheme. But a rate of perceived exertion, this is me on my soapbox, a rate perceived exertion must be a rate. It is not how many do you think you could do after that rep. So it's a percentage or an amount of accumulation over time or something like that. The original one was based on heart rate. It just moved a decimal point over. But anyway, oh, crap. Now I got on the soapbox and I forgot what I was talking about. Yeah, just how can some people tell 
if something needs to be adjusted in session. Right, right. And, and then yeah. just how to go about making those adjustments. Yeah. Well, most people know that they're going to have good days and bad days in training. And if you go into the gym, your warm-ups don't feel good. There's a decent chance that your body just isn't in the optimal shape to perform on that day. It doesn't mean you can't get in good training. But if you're, you put on that first plate for bench press and it's not moving like it usually does, like it feels a little heavier, there are countless variables that go into how you're able to perform, whether it's hydration, sleep, stress, where you're at in the training cycle, where the lunar cycle is, what's going on in, you know, Palestine and Israel. Like all those things play into your readiness at that single moment. And we can't control for all of them, at least not yet. We, have, we don't have a way to measure all those things consistently in, in a valid way. So when you feel like that, it's okay to assume that you're 100% on another day when you felt great. Is not your 100% that day. And just adjust the weight or adjust the volume or something like that. Because understanding that the strength fluctuates from day to day hopefully will save people a lot of stress because it, it doesn't mean that, oh, I've gotten worse. It's just you're not the same person that you were then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, how can you, how do you help either clients or people you've worked with delineate that from, oh, I'm stalling. I need to now add in more work or I need to switch things up. I got to now add in, oh, I better do clusters now. Oh, now I've got to do Maybe better add some bands or chains now. You know what I mean? Yeah, that sometimes yeah. happens too. They think, oh, I'm not as strong or I seem to have be regressing. I must now need to add in stimulus or how do you help them differentiate between the two? Well, especially with my clients, I literally beg them to ask me every single question that they can come up with <laughs> because the more back and forth we can have with things like that, one, they'll be more informed on the whys and hows on as far as the what they are doing. And that increases their motivation and confidence. That is priceless. But for me, it, it gives me really great insight into what they're thinking, what they wonder about. And they can ask me the exact same question I've heard every single month for the last decade of coaching. And it will be in a slightly different context and it will help me be guided to read more research in a, a focused way. It makes me better. So sure. I try to really stress that acute fluctuations, especially body weight, strength, measurements, all those things, they're going to happen. I actually call it the, uh, the WTF principle with body weight. Yeah. When you step on the scale and you think WTF, you're actually correct. It's the weight loss timeline fluctuation principle. And I love it. It's, you should expect at least a 2% up or down from your average body weight. So anywhere in that range, I don't bat an eye. People will freak out if they're up a half pound. I was like, yeah, that was like half of a small bottle of water you might have drank the day before. Yep. So those, those kinds of things really help put all that into perspective. If we see a trend that's less than a week, there's a good chance it's just daily fluctuation ranges that might be giving us misleading information. If it's two weeks, that's when you can start inferring, okay, maybe there's something behind this. Maybe we should change something up. Because those daily fluctuations, they don't usually, they don't fluctuate enough, especially if you're relatively regimented, to where they will give you misleading information for two weeks. Yeah. Gotcha. So, 
if there are fluctuations for that two-week period, it's just an assessment of what is that fluctuation and then try to, to ascertain what's needed. I mean, usually the fluctuation is going to be a negative thing, right? Or else people probably wouldn't be too concerned about it. They would just keep keep going on with what they're doing, right? Generally, yeah. Yeah. So what? So then we're yeah. Then we're looking at the sleep. We're looking at nutrition factors, all those types of things. What are situations when it is truly maybe a stimulus thing? Like maybe there does need to be a switch up in the stimulus. Maybe there does need to be more of a no- novel method used. How, how, when you've seen those instances, what are the indicators? Well, for something probably see the most of it's people trying to lose weight. And when we see a stagnation over the course of two weeks, that's the smallest window that I, I look at data in for that kind of thing. When I see a stagnation for two weeks, I can start to justify reducing calories. Or increasing daily steps or something related to calorie expenditure. That's usually the biggest thing. We we would make changes with that as far as strength conditioning measures. You can look at the data all you want and you can infer things and run all your regression analysis and your ANOVAs. And the first thing you should do is ask your client or athlete, hey, what's going on? How's everything going in life? How's your mom and them? Just see how they're doing. Because uh, a lot of times you'll find more impactful answers from that than looking at the data by itself. So I, I try to create a rapport with all my clients and athletes to where I, I monitor data, but that only informs decisions. That is not what you make decisions from. It can be something as simple as they change the food source. Weather gets colder, they started having soup or chili for their food source. Matches their macros, everything else is the same, but the salt content is going to be considerably different. So you're not going to see a drop in the scale number, even though they're likely still getting actively leaner. So it's just right. little details like that. You just have to communicate. Yeah. I want to talk about your, I want to kind of finish episode talking a little bit more about your career. Because one thing that you mentioned to me prior to recording that kind of inspired this topic today was how you were able to just sustain and create such high-level progress over the course of your powerlifting career, just reaching insane strength numbers. And you mentioned it being more, I guess, more simple than most people would expect. Again, like we think advanced training or we think advanced trainees, we think about dynamic effort method and all these other things. And like I said, like clusters or all the, like the quote unquote fun stuff. And you kind of indicated that that maybe wasn't always the answer to things. So just give the listener insight into how you were able to do that. And then what are the take-homes for them either in their own training or the clients they're working with? Sure. So What I did early in my powerlifting career is what most people did, especially in that time period in the early 2000s. I was reading a ton of articles from Louis Simmons, and I was using the bands and the chains and board presses and box squats and doing all kinds of accommodating resistance setups that would take 30 minutes to set up before I would even get to start really training because I would screw it up probably 10 times trying to figure out how to put it all together. And... 
over time, I mean, I made plenty of strength gains from that. Yeah. When you're younger, you're, or don't have all the training age and you don't have all the injury issues, you can make progress doing a lot of different stuff. And I don't think that's appreciated by as many people as it should be because people can have their anecdotes. I did this program and I got a lot stronger off of it. And I look at the program, it looks like dog crap. No pun intended because there actually is a dog crap program. There is a dog crap. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, I know what you're talking about. It looked like a poorly planned out attempt at executing training for progress. And it was like, well, I mean, it makes sense. You lift heavy, lift often, lift consistently. Like good things will happen to a large extent. Sustainability is where that fatigue management comes in and blah, blah, blah. But as time went on, I had to pay a lot more attention to the risk factors in my training because the weights kept getting heavier and heavier. And most of the time, people stall because they get injured. They have, and they produce yeah. chronic issues because of that. And that hinders their progress more than anything. They can have the best program in the world, but they've got chronic injury issues. Then you're going to be recovering as much as you are training. And it's kind of a net zero over time. For sure. So I knew I had to stay away from that loop very early on because I was lucky enough to see other people go through it. People who just trained really hard all the time. Oh, they just tore a tricep off. Well, I guess that's part of the sport. No, it's not. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Accidents happen, but there are reasons for those things. Just like non-contact ACL injuries in sport, when somebody makes a cut and their knee blows out, there's a fatigue issue there. There, there was something underlying that created that. That's not just a random occurrence. And when you start understanding those things, you can you start planning your training and understanding context and nuance a lot better. But like I said, as things went on, I. I wasn't using bands and chains. I stopped box squatting. I changed all these things. And oddly enough, it started turning into, well, I'm going to do three sets of 10 on these exercises. And then next week, I'm going to do, or next block, I'm going to do five by fives. I'm going to wave up the intensity, and then it's going to get easier for a couple of weeks. The block after that would be three by three or five by three or something like that. So I was maximizing the dose of training that I was getting to where I was getting a big stimulus. But I wasn't just driving my body into the ground. Like after after going as heavy as I could on the last week of those blocks, I was trashed, but I knew I had deload week coming right after that. And everything was going to change to a certain extent, at least half the exercises and the sets and reps would change. And when you do that sequentially over time, you don't allow your body to get into a plateau because things are still changing enough to where it's a novel stimulus to create more progress, but it's not so different, like jumping from doing sets of three for two months and then going straight to sets of 15 where you're not conditioned for that at all. And you're going to cause a lot more damage that it makes it tougher to recover from. And that recovery phase is a lot longer. And we know the recovery phase is a lot longer your adaptation phase is shorter because that only lasts for so long. So sure. when I started planning out my training better, my lifts got simpler. The progression got simpler. I actually only trained two or three times a week when I was at my strongest because I needed all that mm-hmm. time to recover. But the quality of the work that I put in was, in my opinion, top notch. I worked extremely hard on mobility outside of training so I could hit perfect positions. And physically, I mean, my muscles had high output. 
I don't think that it yeah. was like world elite force production by individual muscles by any means. There were guys I competed there with that had much larger muscles and could do all kinds of really impressive strength feats. I, I had absolutely no chance of doing it. But for what I chose to compete in, I felt like I maximized my efficiency specifically for squats because I was able to stay completely upright. I didn't have much strain on my back because my spine was pretty much vertical. If you can take the forward lean out of a squat, the amount of weight you can handle is drastically higher. And that's really where I was. That's why I was squatted so wide. That's why my knees would go out almost 180 degrees just so I could stay completely vertical and hit that mark of parallel to satisfy the judges who were sitting on the side. And I, I don't think anybody was really more efficient than me in that regard. So <clears throat> I'm curious, how often did you rotate movement, your exercise selection? Every four because, weeks. So when you're, tra- when you're training to get your squat that high, every four weeks you are changing the squat variation. So we're t- I mean, is it something like, or was it something like in general, right? This isn't obviously every single training phase, but are we talking like rotating from back squat to front squat, safety bar squat and staying like that? Or what type of movement selection, diff- like uh, rotation were you doing? So if we think about it backwards, which is how most training is planned out, if you have an endpoint or a goal, the month leading up to competition, since I competed in multiply equipment, I was squatting in all of my equipment. So squat suit, briefs, knee wraps, belt, uh, special shoes that wouldn't break, <laughs> which did happen. Which is something you actually have to consider. <laughs> yeah. Well, the when I squatted the thousand pounds at 194, my shoe broke. That's why it was so slow. I was planning on jumping oh. up under 60 pounds after that, but yeah. I couldn't even unrack the Dang. weight because the shoe was split. Anyway, so that's its own squat variation, even though the technique's very similar to squatting unequipped for me. To the month previous to that, I was doing sets of, or a set of three with all that equipment on. So it's a little bit of volume comparatively because I'm doing a triple with 900 pounds. Right. But I only weigh a little over 200 at the time, so there's a crap load of fatigue that comes with that, not just in contractile tissue, but ligaments, tendons. Bones, especially bones, you could feel that. The month before that, I was not in squatting equipment, but I was still squatting with a wide stance belt knee wraps. So that's a different stimulus, very different stimulus. Before that's usually threes in belt and knee wraps. So it's that same kind of difference. It's different enough to create a stimulus, but not so different that I'm completely unfamiliar with it. Normally, the block before that was fives, and that's where I would put in front squats. Because that really helped train my posture. And it's not as much of a leg stimulus as it is a posture stimulus, in my opinion. So I did a fair amount of volume with that. And then the month before that would have been closer stance squats for tens. Yeah, that was my next question of like, how yep. often did you vary the stance? Yeah. Yeah. Farther away from competition, my stance got closer. So I could get quad development because it's great for knee health and overall strength in, in general but it was more hypertrophy-oriented the farther away from, from competition. In 15s, I usually did about the same thing, but I would change at yeah. least half of the other exercises 
But the squat variations changed, but they weren't so different from what I'd done previously that it was something really drastic. There was a progression. For sure. Like all those like little changes, I guess that's where my mind goes from a long-term health perspective Mm -hmm. of just trying to mitigate the fatigue or how the the tissues experience the load. Um, And that's, so I guess I've been doing mostly CrossFit, I guess, for the past three-ish years almost. And that's, I think, one of the we other in addition to the other things. Like I'm very well aware of all the weaknesses of CrossFit. That was a, that's one where it's you claim to be this buried training methodology, but from your movements, you there's hardly any variation. Right. And I'm like, can we just get a other not have people do the same in, same variation of something day in and week out, month in, month out, or allow someone to use a trap bar for goodness sake when we're deadlifting <laughs> or something like that. But yeah, like that's really where my mind goes of if we're talking about long-term progress, it's you know, managing the systemic fatigue in general and then appropriately rotating the movements with proper progression because you wouldn't want to jump from your like a certain squat variation to yes, a squat pattern, but something completely removed like a rear foot elevated split squat kind of thing. Sure. Like that's really far away in my, like, it could be anyway, depending on who you are and, and your skill level and all those things. And if you're at a really high level, <clears throat> that's a big shift for someone like me. So yeah, I thought, I think it's really interesting. Derek, as we wrap up here, is there anything else you want to impart on the listener with regards to like the topics we've discussed or anything you want to leave with them? Uh, really just... Think critically about everything that you see. I hope someone sits down, I hope a lot of people sit down and listen to this and hear all the things that I've talked about and try to absolutely rip it apart. I tried to rip stuff apart that I said five years ago, and hopefully I've learned something since then and I'm able to successfully do it. So if you think back and look at stuff you've said or thought five, 10 years ago, 15, 20, if you still agree with everything, you probably haven't learned that much. Because there's always added nuance context, and that's why the answer of damn near every question is it depends. If you don't, if you have someone speaking in absolutes, especially as a a trainer or someone in the fitness industry, nutrition, whatever, if they speak in absolutes, then they don't understand context. They don't understand all the variables that are at play with everything that we're doing. Because deepest researching niches that we've got is just now figuring out. Okay, well, we learned one thing. Here's 10 more things we have no idea about because we can't measure it. Exactly. When the smarter people are incredibly doubtful of what we've got as far as established information and the younger or less informed people are way overconfident about it, there's a big reason there. So think critically, do your research and compare notes with all the other people and don't be married to any specific thing because... As soon as you do, there's going to be an advancement in technology to where we can measure something new and it's going to crap all over what you thought. So, (laughs) Right. (laughs) But then, so hearing you say that, it kind of brings me back to something else you said earlier about the importance of having the conversation with your clients. Yeah. Of like understanding what that context is for them, whether that's what's your training history. What's going on right now? 
what are all the variables that are at play here that if you didn't know, I mean, you might be recommending the wrong thing. The dose of training might be too high, but you might be imparting too much fatigue or whatever it may be. So like building the rapport and being understanding, like trying to understand all the variables that go into the context can hopefully kind of mitigate what we don't do or do not know from a tech technological measurement standpoint. Yeah. So yeah, that's a just, yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. And I think highlights something you said earlier, that's really important. So Derek, man, thank you so much for your time. Where, if you want to learn more about you, find you, where's the best place to go? I'm on Instagram the most at Wilcox Strength Inc. Wilcox Strength Inc.com will be up very soon, hopefully. Ah, in the very near future. Renaissance great. Periodization, I've worked with for a decade now. I love the folks over there. We've got so many good projects going on all the time. And I've met my wife through them. So yeah, <laughs> I'm a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. Well, yes, that will be linked in the show notes. And if the website's up, we'll have that in the show notes as well. Beware on Derek's Instagram. You're going to see a lot of traps. Like you're <laughs> going to go you're basically... You're going to get trap envy, probably. So just fair warning. When you've gone through life as indecisive as I've been, just shrugging, I don't know, over and over again, that's what happens. There you go. There's the secret (laughs) to traps. Just always be inquisitive and be like, I don't know. Derek, man, thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure, man. Thank you for listening to the Performance Connection podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, share on social media, and on Instagram, at Performance Connection Podcast, all one word. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. Thanks again, and I hope you'll keep listening or check out other episodes.